Okay, let, uh, let's stand up and uh, we start with uh, one of the songs, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Come now is the time to worship. Now is the time to worship. The presence of the Lord is here. Okay? That's good. Amen. Come. Now is the 
picked up with the fancy like God And one day every knee will bow Still the greatest treasures he made for those Who gladly choose you and I capture things easily <laughs> have a good memory so we're going to give ourselves away i give myself away to god so he can use me all your problems give it to god god will take care of them so those are how the lyrics goes
Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not our fathers that the Lord made this covenant with, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire in the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make, not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Lord, you are Jehovah Nissi, God our banner, and you are a faithful God who always keeps your promises. Help us, Lord, to learn your decrees and laws and to follow them so we can know you better and be more like our Lord Jesus. I pray we will be a people who desire to have a relationship with you so we can hear your voice in our everyday lives and see you face to face. May the goal of our lives be to bring you glory. Lord, you are our saviour. You are the God who brought us out of slavery by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. Sins we should pay for because of our disobedience to you, yet because of your great mercy and love, you paid it all, and we no longer live in bondage to Satan, but in freedom through Christ. By your death on the cross, we are saved. By your rising from the dead, we are given eternal life with God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Lord, you are all in all. Protect us, Lord, from having other gods or idols in our lives. Help us not to put money, things, sports, our work, family or friends or anything else before you. Forgive us, Lord, if we have done this and help us to change through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you are the great healer. We lift up the many people in our congregation who are sick. We pray healing for them in the mighty name of Jesus. Jesus said to the woman who was sick, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. We pray in faith that all who are sick will be healed today. 
Lord, you are love, and you instruct us to love one another as you, Jesus, loved us. Only you, Father, can give us this kind of love, and we pray that the love of Christ will radiate from each person here at Richview so we can be a family of love and others will see and know that we are your disciples. Thank you, Lord, for Pastor Joe. We pray for protection over him, Heather, and their children. Father, be with Joe as he brings us your message this morning. And Lord, I pray that you will give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's continue worshipping, and uh, we will... Uh, let's please stand up and then sing uh, beautiful things.
uh, Brother Christ can come over to pray for the offering. Good morning, church. Uh, let us pray for the offerings. Yeah. Lord, um, we thank you for giving us this day to come here, and um, we thank you for everything that you give us through being physical, spiritually, and inspiring. And at this time, we'll give back to you a little bit of what um, you've given us. And uh, in that regard, we thank you and we ask you to continue blessing us uh, as the church as we uh, look forward to all our future plans and everything that we, we do and so that we can use uh, these offerings to uh, make the church and the mission of the church to increase. And we ask that uh, those new to the church, you, you are not obligated to give uh, the offerings, but if you see the the basket going through, you can easily pass it away. In this regard, um, I thank you, Lord, and uh, that you to continue uh, to bless us. And thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Sandy. I didn't really want to come up and preach. I just wanted to keep listening. So, bless you. We've spent the last few weeks in this series on crucial conversations and asking questions like, are there moments in life where a few moments in life that matter more than all the rest? And we've been looking at the master teacher the perfect man, the God-man Jesus, who time after the time is a master at crucial conversations. And we've been looking at the fact that are there moments in your life by how you act or what you say could have an enormous effect moving forward. And, and we define crucial conversations as having three dimensions. And, and there's a diagram here of 
which is very interesting spaced out. But uh, we have three dimensions of when opposing opinions, high stakes, and strong emotions all come together, you have this definition of a crucial conversation. And we talked about the first week here, what's the most crucial conversation you can have with someone? What's the most crucial question you can ask someone? And that is, have you met Jesus? And a few weeks ago, we talked about when you actually enter into a crucial conversation, in that moment, you have that what's called the hazardous half minute. You've got 30 seconds with how you act, how you respond. You have a 97% chance of, of being heard if you create a culture of safety. And then we talked about last week, how you and I have been brought up with the myth that if you tell the truth, you will lose a friend. And we must strive to be the kind of people who talk about the untalkables. We have to strive for that because those are the things that get us stuck. Now, why is this so important? Why why are we even doing a series on this? Why are we even looking at the life of Jesus? There's lots of popular speakers and 21st century get help, get well kind of uh, talkers who could help us through this. But I want to show you something, and it's really simple, because if you're feeling stuck, if you're in need of change, if you're in need of life-transforming change in your personal life, in your marriage, in your job, in your work, on your team, in your organization, if you want to get unstuck, if you want to, and here's a, here's a diagram to really simplify this, Because this is what it really all boils down to. All of us want to get to our super awesome goal. Really, that's what it is. And this is why we're looking at Jesus, because no one had a better, more super awesome goal than Jesus. And that was the salvation of all of humanity. And you can often measure the success of an organization, a team, a family, a a person, by the amount of untalkables. And and if we want to be transformed, if we want to get out of this feeling of being unstuck, our wheels are spinning, if we want to get to our super awesome goal, who better to look at than Jesus who had the perfect life? He had the most super awesome goal ever. That was his mission. That's where he was headed. Could you imagine all the pressure that was on him in his life, in his short life? And even you see, and you read in the Gospels about his life, he can stop and put a child on his lap. He can slow down and be compassionate to a crowd. He has this ability, though, just to stay on focus. I'm going to reach my super awesome goal, or our super awesome goal. And I want to encourage you, I encourage you this week, this month, every day, keep reading through Mark. Keep reading through the Gospels. Focus on how Jesus acted in crucial conversations. Focus on his behavior. Look at how he handles people. I want to focus on one last technique today in this crucial conversation series. And this is the last one, and I think it's the most important one, is we got to be able to tell ourselves the right story. we got to tell ourselves the right story. And before we get to the passage today, I want to talk a little bit more this week about Pharisees. And we talked a little bit about Pharisees last week, the separated ones. These were the super religious dudes in Jesus' day. 
And there is one thing that they thought was very, very sacred above all else. It was the Sabbath, the day of rest, Saturday. And it goes all the way back, if you learn their story, you hear their story, it goes all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis 2, we're told this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So way back as their story and their thinking goes, God creates all the world, and on the seventh day, he rests. Sabbath means to come to rest. And it became so important a part of their heritage. But the story's not done there. The story continues in Exodus chapter 6. It says this, God comes to a guy named Moses, and the people of Israel says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So God creates the world in six days, rest on the seventh, and then some time goes by. He comes to Moses, these children of Israel, and he says, I'm going to take you. Now, to a Jewish person and to the ancients, the words take you has a very different understanding than it does for us in English. Let me give you the Hebrew word, vacha. Let me hear you say vacha. If spit hit the person in front of you, you said it right, okay? But here's the idea. It's kind of step one in courtship. It's like when you show up at school that first day of high school or that first day of college and you see that person who just starts making your heart beat faster. I'm going to take you. And it's that, you know, I like you. You caught my attention. Step one. Story continues in Exodus chapter 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine. So God comes to Moses, the people, and he says, I'm gonna, I've noticed you, I'm taking you, I'm courting you, and then it gets a little bit more intimate. It's like step two. You're going to be my treasured possession. In the Hebrew, the word is this. Segula. Let me hear you say segula. segula. Much easier. My treasured possession. But if you've been dating someone, it's been a couple dates in, you start to use language like, of all the people, in all the world, I chose you. That's the kind of language getting far more intimate. Story continues. Exodus chapter 19. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. So the courtship's actually really escalating here. It's almost time to get hitched. And guys and girls, grooms, brides-to-be, just before you get married, what should you do? Have a shower. <laughs> Back then, they didn't have them. They had ancient things called, the Hebrew word is mikvah. Let me hear you say mikvah. Okay, it's like an ancient hot tub. You got to go get yourself ceremonial purified for the big day. This is a very fast courtship. Next here, Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp 
trembled. So God takes these people, comes to Moses and these people, he leads them out of Egypt, he takes them to a mountain, and there's this courtship going on, and he brings them to this mountain. It's almost the wedding day. And if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, what do you always see at a Jewish wedding? Chuppah! Let me hear you say chuppah. It's kind of like a lattice. You always see a lattice, a banner over them. It's a picture, it's a picture of God covering over them. And in this case, when they come to Mount Sinai, you got the clouds. Fourth stage of courtship. And finally, we get to the last one here. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I. But to the ancients, they refer to this next section as the ten words. We know it better as the ten commandments. And here's the idea here. It's, the Hebrew word here is ketubah. Let me hear you say ketubah. Ketubah means wedding contract or covenant. So for them, not us, but for them, when they read Exodus chapter 20, when they read the Ten Commandments, what they picture is a wedding. And here's the deal. If you want to have a good marriage, God's saying with me, you need to keep your end of the deal. Here are the ten words you need to remember if we're going to be faithful to one another. No cheating. And so for us in modern 21st century, what do we symbolize a, a marriage with? And a, symbolize a ring. Now for them, the wedding ring of their relationship to God is the Sabbath. The fourth command. The Sabbath is the symbol of the marriage. The Sabbath is the date day you have with the creator of the universe. The Sabbath is the picture of you stopping, coming to rest, and enjoying your spouse, the creator of all the universe. Are we tracking? Now, let's read Mark chapter 2. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Or we can read a little bit later on here in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, how many of you think that the Pharisees' reaction was a bit harsh? I mean, come on, kill? I mean, he just healed a guy. How, how did it escalate all the way to killing? But I just gave you their story, didn't I? 
I just gave you how they feel about Sabbath. There's a lot of emotion to the Sabbath for men. It has a lot of history. They took this so seriously, the Pharisees, the religious people, they actually came up with 39 more regulations so that no one would even come close to breaking date day with God. One, one of the regulations was you could never take more than 1,999 paces on Sabbath. I kind of think Jesus might have broke that one that day when they were walking through the fields. But I also like to consider, how did those Pharisees know he was in the fields in the first place? They must have been spying. They probably took more steps too. Anyhow, we don't know, but I, that's the way my brain thinks sometimes. But come on, kill? 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 I mean, how do people get to that place? I want you to do something with me for a second. Close, if, you, if, you're, if you're able to and you want to, close your eyes if you haven't already. And, and imagine with me for a second. There's a woman, and she's struggling with a crucial conversation with her husband. And follow this really, really carefully. She just found out that over the past six months, her husband has been having lunch with his ex-girlfriend. Now, the question I want to ask you is, as I started to describe some of that information, what is the story that you started to tell yourself? Think about it for a moment. What sorts of things did you just add to the information I just gave you? Some obvious concerns would be, well, is he having more than lunch? Is he having dessert as well? Right? I mean, what's going on here? Is he fooling around? Is he doing something behind her back? But look at how more subtly we begin to add so much more to what's going on in the moment. Now go back to the moment, to what you experienced in your brain when I began describing to you what that woman said when she found out that her husband over the past six months has been having lunch with her ex-girlfriend. What sort of leaps did you and I start to make? I don't know if you're like me, but when I heard her talking, I didn't just hear lunch, I saw lunch. I started to imagine what kind, what the lunch looked like. What kind of restaurant was it? Was it drive-through? Or was it an intimate setting with a nice linen tablecloth and wine glasses and silverware? In your restaurant, was there a candlestick? Were there a lot of people or were there just two? And here's the thing that's so surprising for so many of us. What we see and hear does not create emotion. See, there's this intervening variable called your story. And before you can experience an emotion, you have to tell yourself a story about what just happened to you. And it's in that moment we tell certain kinds of stories, and those stories often create two types of flavors in all of us. If you're like me, I, I frequently get, feel frustrated in those moments, and I can get immediately frustrated and concerned. And the story that I sometimes create uh, with the emotion that's attached to it is that person's doing what they're doing because they're an idiot. 
There's two of us. Amen. All right. But I think also for a lot of us, there's a story you're telling yourself and you're doing it is they're not stupid. They're evil. They're a spawn of Satan. They're, they don't care about my purposes. It's malicious intent. They got their selfish moments. They're, they're evil, rotten motives. And, and we create this story and it escalates to such a point we either become silent or violent. All because of a story we tell ourselves. And here's the thing. If you can learn to intervene and affect that story, it changes everything when it comes to crucial conversations. Everything. Now, here's the problem. Here's the challenge. There's three clever stories we tell ourselves. First of all, there's victim stories. It's not my fault. There's a second story we like to tell ourselves. It's, it's villain stories. It's their fault. And then finally, there's helpless stories. There's nothing else I can do. So let's test this out, shall we? Let's go back here to the story today. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, what clever story had they already made up about Jesus? Maybe this picture will kind of get us into context here, this next picture here, all right? I mean, it's a victim story, isn't it? We, the religious, we, the Pharisees, haven't we sacrificed so hard to protect Sabbath, to make it holy? Look at these 39 regulations that we keep so that we don't even come close to breaking this. And look at this guy. Look at him. We've been so clear about what's proper, and he doesn't give any whiff about it. And they're a poor victim. And all of a sudden, it justifies in their minds that they can start calling him names and punishing him and talking behind his back and to his face, and he's guilty, and I'm an innocent victim. But the victim story isn't enough, is it? You need more help in order to make yourself feel good about silence or violence because for the most part, you and I believe we shouldn't, even do, we shouldn't do those things. We should speak up. We should sort of move. We shouldn't move into violence or, or control, but we do. So we need a second kind of story to help us out. We need a villain story. Not only am I an innocent victim, but look at this guy, Jesus. He's ungrateful, and he's selfish, and he breaks rules, and he's undisciplined, and he's obnoxious, and he's disrespectful, and I can paint him as evil and awful and rotten to the degree that I can now feel justified by behaving badly as a religious person. I'm a victim. He's a villain. He doesn't care about my opinion, he's, he's controlling, he, he's obnoxious, he's arrogant, he's egotistical. And when I tell myself that kind of story, I create this kind of emotion. And with that emotion, I can start to feel good about the most horrible kind of actions. And I can move to violence or silence. 
And I finally get to maybe the third kind of story, the helpless story. What are we going to do? There's nothing I can do about this guy. He's got all this power. Where's my leverage? And we're told in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. If that doesn't mean much to you, let me put it in 21st century context. That would be like the conservative party and the liberal party completely unifying to get rid of Jesus. Outrageous! That's how desperate and dangerous they are. That's how far they were willing to go. Let's get together with the Herodians. They know how to chop people's heads off. They got connections. Now, this might seem extreme, this story today, but some of us do this every day when we hop in the car and someone cuts us off on the highway. Or when we get onto the bus or the subway and somebody has put their feet up on the only empty chair. Or when we go to school and the school bully or jerk approaches. Or we go to work and that obnoxious coworker or boss is headed in your general direction. And we think to ourselves, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. They're a villain. There's nothing else I can do. The Pope said last week, I don't know if you read this or heard this, but it's better to be an atheist than a, than a hypocrite. But when I read the Gospels and I read these stories we've been doing these last couple weeks, the people, it seems to me, that are the furthest from God are self-righteous, religious people. And we see this in this passage because there are a few things in life more destructive than legalism. And if you're a legalist, the stories that get in your head are so destructive, if not the most destructive there's an old story that's told, maybe you've heard it, but a mystic, an evangelical pastor. Oh man, what was the last one? I don't know if I wrote it down. That's all right. I'll make up a new story. And a fundamentalist preacher, they all die in the same day. And they're ushered up into the pearly gates. <clears throat> and as they arrive at the pearly gates, who's to greet them but St. Peter? And St. Peter promptly says to them, informs them that before they enter heaven, they have to be interviewed by Jesus concerning their doctrine. So the, the first person called forward is the mystic. He goes in through a door. He comes out about five hours later, and he remarks, I thought I had gotten it all wrong, with a smile on his face. Then Peter signals in the evangelical pastor. He goes in the door. The day goes by. Door opens. Out walks the evangelical pastor, exclaiming, How could I have been so wrong? And finally, Peter turns to the fundamentalist pre uh, preacher and says, come on in. Fundamentalist preacher grabs his well-worn, tattered Bible, and he walks in. A week goes by, and then the door opens, and Jesus himself appears, explaining, how could I have gotten it all so wrong? Our hearts 
our preferences, our stories, our laws, they can deceive us and they can make us spiritual slaves. And we keep seeing this in the scripture time and time again. We see this with religious people. There's this idea, if I obey, if I'm good, I'm accepted. If I obey, if I'm good, God owes me heaven and God owes me a good life. And the problem is, we all run into the same problem because no matter how good you think you are, I mean, look at Jesus' response to this legalist. In this crucial conversation, he, he's questioned about plucking grain on the, on the day of rest. I'm here in verse 25 of chapter 2. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, when he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What? What does that mean? We tend to overcomplicate this passage. I think it's really, really simple. That's why maybe I can understand it. But David and his men were in need of something to eat. They were in need of something to eat. So they ate the sacred bread that was reserved only for the priest. It was not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat that bread. So what they did was not lawful. But God's intent always, especially when it comes to something like the Sabbath, the day of rest, is that it would be a blessing. And God didn't want David and his men to starve. It wasn't the norm. It wasn't the norm for them to do this, but he didn't want them to starve. And Jesus is saying, a godly man back then did the right thing, and the God-man now is doing the right thing. And then he says something outstanding, and I'll put it in my own words. Religion is over because I am here. I am the bread of life. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Paul, many years later, writes in Colossians 2. And if there's one verse you can memorize, commit to memory this week, this needs to be our story. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So let's go back to the beginning of the story again. Back in Genesis 1, God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he does what? Rest. All right. Was God tired? So why is he resting? How could he rest? And here's the deal, because I don't think we understand rest properly. The reason he rests is because he was so utterly satisfied with his work. It says several times after every, every day, it says, and God saw it and it was, Good. It was good. Good. God creates man. Good. God creates woman. Very good. Yes. 
That's what the text says. And he's so utterly satisfied. And when you're so utterly satisfied with your work, what can you do? You can put it down. You can lay it aside. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. I don't need to tinker with it anymore. It's done. You can walk away from it. You can leave it down. You can let it go. I'm satisfied with it. I'm happy with it. And only when you can say it is finished, I'm happy with it. I'm satisfied. Can you walk away? And there's a work we really need rest from underneath all our work. For most of us, when it comes to God, when it comes to other people, we're always working in order to prove ourselves. To convince God, to convince others that we're good enough, that we're good people. And unless we come to the point where we rest in the gospel, we're going to work ourselves to death. Unless we come to the point like God did on that seventh day, it is finished. We're going to keep working And on that cross, at the end of redemption, what were Jesus' words? It is finished. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you rest in my finished work, then you'll know God is satisfied with you. And you can be satisfied with life. We need to be resting on what Christ did on the cross. Because on that cross, he experienced the restlessness of separation from God so that you and I could have deep rest, knowing that he loves us now and forever and that our sins have been paid for. If you can build and cling to that story every day, your life will be transformed. If that all just went over your head, just apply this. Just think about this. If you wake up every morning from here on out, and you know that because of what he did for you on the cross, that debt, that enormous debt of wrongdoing, of sins you've done, it's been taken care of. And if you get to that point, if you, if, if you confess and you come to the understanding, God, I, I can't live up to your laws. I, I've, I haven't lived the life I should have, but I, I'm trusting what Jesus has done on the cross to forgive me. You can no longer go through life looking down on other people. It's impossible. The only thing you can do for the rest of your days is look up. Because you know that enormous, impossible debt you could never pay back. He's taken care of. It is finished. And when you start to think in those moments of some clever story, like, I'm a victim, they're a villain, I'm helpless, may you be reminded of the most important story. That needs to superimpose, that needs to go over all those silly little clever stories we tell, tell ourselves. You're on the road, and someone cuts you off. Instead of going, I'm a villain, they're a victim. Oh, man, man, they're, they're a terrible driver. They're a spawn of Satan. I bet you they don't even have a driver's license. Where did you go to driving school? You know all the things that kind of go on your head? You, you all know what I'm talking about. Some of you do the same thing on the buses, so yeah, I... I 
when you understand the enormous debt that's been paid for you, when you understand this story, and you have that peace, you know that it's been finished, it's been dealt with, and the only place you have to do, only place you, you can look is up. You can say even in that moment, okay, yeah, they made a mistake, but I've made mistakes too. And he took care of them. That doesn't mean they get off the hook, by the way. But whenever those crucial conversations come up, if you live daily with that story, that hope, the peace, the rest, that comes. Whenever those clever stories that, that come up that drive you to act or think a certain way, 